Well, let me uh, extend a welcome to you. I can't tell you how delighted I am to be able to introduce Dan Arilly tonight. I'm Larry Phillips. I'm a uh, visiting professor in the Operational Research Group. Um, the reason I'm particularly delighted is that if this lecture had been given in 1982, we might have reserved a small classroom for it. But uh, it's perfectly clear that uh, things have changed since I first came to the LSE when uh, discussing behavioral decision theory, which is what I studied in my PhD at the University of Michigan under Ward Edwards, uh, nobody seemed to be interested in behavioral issues at all in decision-making. Um, and they still uh, weren't until this miraculous thing happened that Dan Kahneman won the Nobel Prize. It's amazing what that will do to stimulate a, a profession and to stimulate interest. But Dan, of course, was working in these things well before that, as were a number of us. And having finished reading his book, which I'm uh, highly recommending to you, it's uh, been a, a real treat to see a book that, w when I first flipped through, it had no graphs. And I thought, my god, this is not possible. How can you study uh, this, this discipline and not even have a single graph on the whole paper? But what he has done is perfectly clear with words. And he's taken the focus and kept the focus throughout the entire book on key issues. And he has the ability to design experiments that go rather beyond what many of us did in behavioral decision theory, which was simply to document a problem. Uh, and eventually, these became known as cognitive illusions. And, um, Heuristics and biases piled one on top of another. At last count, I counted 60 heuristics and biases that are in the literature. But they don't really tell you what are people capable of. What could they do if they just were able to do things better? And he has managed at the end of each chapter to tell you, well, now in light of this, what could be done that would, would improve behavior and make it more <coughs> rational? Well, I don't want to uh, say any more about what he's going to say, so I think it's best to uh, turn the floor over to Dan Arilly, who is, as many of you know, a professor at uh, MIT with a visiting professorship at uh, Duke University. Anyway, uh, let me give you Dan Arilly. Thank you. Thank you very much. See if I can get this to work. Um, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my grandfather went to school here. He always uh, talks very warmly about the place, although he did say that people believe too much in rationality. So I'm particularly happy to be here for that. And um, I'll tell you uh, quickly. Um, quite a few years ago, I decided I want to write something that is non-academic. I'm sure many of you read academic papers. You might not find them always that exciting. Uh, they're also not that exciting to write many times. And I decided to write something uh, fun, and I tried to write a cookbook. And the title of my cookbook was Dining Without Crumbs, The Art of Eating Over the Sink. And it was going to be a, a guide for the single male and female about how to think about the kitchen and life in general. <laughs> and I took it to MIT Press, I, took, I wrote a couple of chapters, and they said, very cute. We have no idea what to do with it. 
I took it to some book agent and they said it has no space in the bookstore. It's not a cookbook, it's not a research book, it's not a humor book. What is it? There's no way to do anything with it. About two years ago, uh, somebody told me that if I ever want to uh, write my cookbook, I need to take a hit first and write a book on my research. Um, and I said, okay, there's no other option. I have to write something about my research and this is how this book came about. Now, I know it's not the most <laughs> exciting introduction uh, or the most appealing, but the process of writing it was actually quite fun. I, I think I learned a lot about how to do it and I, uh, I truly enjoyed it. Um, but now I am uh, just started working back on my cookbook, so, so <laughs> things are good. Um, okay, so I want to tell you a little bit about behavioral economics and I want to start by telling you how I became uh, interested in irrationality. <clears throat> so um, I was injured in an explosion uh, quite a few years ago and as a consequence I got burned in about 70% of my body. And I spent about three years in hospital, uh, the first few months in an intensive care unit of the burn department. And um, one of the worst things in the burn department is the bath treatment. So every day they take the burn patients, they put them down into a, a big bath with iodine water, they let them soak there for a while and then try to rip off the bandages one after the other. Now you all had the bandage at some point and you all must have wondered like the central question of bandage removal, do I do it quickly? and short duration but high pain, or do I do it slowly, but long duration and low intensity of pain? Well, when you have a lot of your body without skin, it's first of all much more painful than just removal of bandage, and the second, it's a really important question. So I would dedicate much of my day to, to, ponder, to ponder this question, and, and I would routinely argue with the nurses. So the nurses had their approach. They started at my feet and ended at my head, and they would rip the bandages quickly, one after the other. So let's say they will finish within an hour. And their approach would be to have high spikes of pain lasting in short duration as possible. I didn't feel this was the right uh, approach, and I would, ask them, I would ask them to change, uh, but they told me that they were correct, that this was actually the best way, the best way to do it. Um, and as the word patient implies, you don't have much control. Uh, when, you're, when you're in hospital. So a few years later when I started studying at the university, I discovered the experimental method. I discovered if you have a question, you can sometimes bring it to the lab, you can change some conditions, and you might be able to find an answer for that. So that's what I did. I had very little money to start with for research, so I bought a carpenter's vice, and I would crunch people's fingers for shorter duration with higher intensity, for longer duration, <coughs> increasing, decreasing, um, I got more funding after that, and I moved to <laughs> uh, better equipment, electrical shocks, heat, other things. The conclusion turned out to be the same, and the conclusion was that the nurses were wrong. My pain would have been, long, uh, would have been uh, lower if the duration was longer and the intensity reduced, if they started from the worst pain and moved to the least amount of pain, and if they would have given me breaks. And the question, actually there are two side points here. One is I'll tell you, I went back to the burn department and I gave a talk about this. And, and they were surprised to find out the results and they said they'll change, which I haven't tested on them, but I hope, I hope they change. But one of my nurses, my favorite nurse, um, she said that perhaps I also forgot something. And perhaps I forgot their pain. And she said that for them to deliver pain to patients they like was actually very, very difficult. 
and maybe she said that their desire to have the duration shorter was actually something to protect themselves rather than the patient. <coughs> now, we both agree that that's not the right objective function to have, that the patient is the, is the person we should minimize their pain. <coughs> but nevertheless, it was possible that their inability to learn was due to the fact that they had a strong intuition and they didn't want to deviate from that because of their own pain. So the big question that comes out of it, how can good people with good intentions and plenty of experience, they were doing this to me every day for months, they were doing it to other patients for a long time, these are people with years of experience, how could they be wrong? And is it the case that there are many cases, perhaps, where experience and good intentions are not enough not to make bad, bad decisions? And I think this is the case, and, and most of my research since has been trying to look at those in those cases. Uh, but before I go on and talk about behavioral economics, I want to give you a couple of more intuitive uh, examples of, of this idea. So think about these two tables. And you've all, some of you must have seen this visual illusion. What do you see as longer? The y-axis on this table on the x-axis on this table. Now, you all know it's an illusion. I wouldn't have shown you if it wasn't a trick. So don't tell me what's kind of the right answer, but see, what do you see? Is there anybody who can see this as being longer? Of course not, right? The one on the left <coughs> looks bigger. Now, with visual illusions, we can easily demonstrate mistakes, which we can't always with decision illusions. So I can put some lines on it, I can animate the lines, and I can show you that you were wrong, that your vision was deluding you, was making you make a wrong decision. The interesting thing about visual illusions is that even though I've just shown you this was a mistake, you can't see it correctly. You can't say, oh yeah, of course, now that you've shown me, I see that this was a mistake and they're equal. You can't, you can't help it. It's a mistake that we do repeatedly and there's almost no way not to see it. Here's one of my favorite illusions. Uh, what is this color? This is your part. Brown, very good. And this one? Orange. Can you believe that they are the same? They're identical. There's no difference between them. Can you see it? Now, Again, we can cover the rest of the cube, and now you can see that they are actually identical. There are usually enough skeptical people in the audience that don't believe me. <laughs> <coughs> so I, I, I walk around just, just because people's disbelief is too high. <coughs> can I have a volunteer? Sir, have we met before? <laughs> <laughs> What's the color of this? Brown. This one? Lighter brown. <laughs> what about now? The same. The same. Oh, you, can, you can pass this around. <coughs> uh, it truly is amazing. And again, it doesn't help to see that this is an illusion to be able to correct your vision in, in any way. I'll show you the last one. If you've seen this one, please don't participate. Anybody here have seen this one before? Okay, very good. Be very quiet and don't participate. Okay. <laughs> what I'm going to show you is a clip that lasts 30 seconds. You'll see people with white t-shirts passing the ball to each other and people with black t-shirts pass the ball to each other. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to count how many times the people with white t-shirts pass the ball to each other. Okay? How many times the people with white t-shirts pass the ball to each other? This is LSE. You're all supposed to be at least good in math. If you don't all come up with the same answer, it will be incredibly humiliating. <coughs> um, and as a second motivation, I should tell you that it's been shown repeatedly 
that success on this task is very correlated with longevity and job promotion. Okay? <laughs> so try, try and do well. Okay, you ready? How many times the people with white t-shirts pass the ball to each other? Good luck. Okay, numbers. Seven, anybody didn't saw a different number than 17? 16, 18. Any other numbers? 13. My goodness. Anybody? <coughs> there are many people here that if you want to go to accounting, come and talk to me before that. Um, but, but the real question, of course, is from the people who didn't see it before, how many people focused on the number and didn't see the gorilla? <laughs> Anybody here who, who focused saw the gorilla? Okay, a few, few people. So let's, let's look at this again. Now, <clears throat> if you look very, very carefully, very, very carefully, you can see a tiny gorilla. It's very hard to see. <laughs> but you will see a small gorilla passing through. See if you can see it. <laughs> now, think about the skill. Think about the skill required to see something big and black pass between the middle of your vision and completely to ignore it. It's really quite amazing. What, what is the point of all this? The point is that we do vision very well. We have a bigger part of our brain dedicated to vision than to anything else. We do more vision in more hours of the day than we do anything else. We're evolutionarily designed to do it. And nevertheless, we have these built-in mistakes. And by the way, you will never be able to see the gorilla trick again. You will never ever to see this clip and not make this and, and, and not see the gorilla. But in no way have I cured you from the ability to ignore information that passes through the middle of your visual field when you're not expecting it. <coughs> the issue is that we have some built-in mistakes, that we have some things that causes us to make repeatable mistakes every time, and we just can't help it. I mean, that's the natural way in which we process information, and we better understand how these things work. Now, <coughs> remember this thing from this. Do you want the blue pill or the red pill? Do you want to believe in rationality? You should go home. If you want to believe that we could possibly make some mistakes occasionally, I'll offer you the blue pill. I'm assuming that you're here. We'll take, the, we'll take the blue pill. So let me give you a few examples of decision illusions. And think of those as parallel to the visual illusions. This is perhaps my favorite plot in all of social science. It's a plot of different countries in Europe and how much uh, they give as organ donations. I mean, this is not actual organ donation because organ donation depends on how people die and all kinds of other things. These are people who indicate they want to give their organs. And you basically see countries that give a little and countries that give a lot. And when people look at this, they say, what are the big cultural differences that explain this difference? Religion, law. I mean, there have to be some, some big things. 
So let's look at different countries. Denmark is all the way on the left. Sweden, which is quite similar in many ways, is all the way on the right. The Netherlands is on the left. Belgium is on the right. By the way, Netherlands got to 28 after they mailed every household in the country a request to join this, a, be- a letter begging them to join this thing. Okay? We don't know how much they were before. <coughs> Germany, Austria, depend, and now I know some people here are from the UK, some are not, but you can think about whether you want to think about France as the UK as similar <laughs> or different, but for sure they are very different in terms of organ donation. Now, what explains this? What explains this huge difference? It turns out it's whether the default on the driving license is opt-in and opt-out. In countries where it says check the box below if you want to participate, what people do, they don't check and they don't join. In countries <coughs> where the default is check the box below if you don't want to participate, people again don't check, but now they join. <coughs> now, you could think to yourself that people just don't care. They say, my goodness, I don't care if my organs go to donation or not. In fact, I don't care so much that I can't be bothered to lift a pencil and mark, and mark a square. But in fact, it's the opposite. <clears throat> it's because we care and because it's difficult and because it's complex. Because it involves our body after we die and our family and our funeral and what will happen. But we just don't know what to do. And as a consequence, we revert to the default. Now think about what it means for the person who knew that and could design the form of the DMV in terms of how much power they would have. This is a billion dollar, at least a billion dollar decision. Now, does it happen only to people who make decisions very infrequently and are not experts in this? So here's an experiment by Redelman and Shafir. They took doctors. Doctors are high-paid individuals who make decisions about their patients' welfare repeatedly. They're experts from any possible direction. And they told the physician that they have this patient. He's a 67-year-old farmer. They've been treating him for a while for hip pain. Nothing seemed to be working, so they decide to refer the patient to hip replacement. Okay, everything is set. The decision has been made. The default is hip replacement. Unless the physician does something, the patient goes to the physician to get hip replacement. Now, half of the physician, they said yesterday, you went through the formulary and you discovered you haven't tried ibuprofen. You haven't tried one drug medication. What do you do? Hip replacement or ibuprofen? Now, I hope you wouldn't be surprised to know that the majority of physicians chose ibuprofen. Hip replacement is expensive, irreversible, dangerous. Ibuprofen, right? Why not, why not try another anti-inflammatory? The other group of physicians was said yesterday, when you got, uh, you looked through the formulary, you discovered there were two medications you haven't tried, ibuprofen and peroxicam. What do you do? Ibuprofen, peroxicam, or hip replacement. The conflict between peroxicam and, and, and ibuprofen, in this case, was sufficiently large that 75% of the physician chose to send the patient to hip replacement. Now, this of course is American physicians. I'm sure the British are much, are much better. <coughs> but, but think about how much a small conflict can get people to go back to the default. Now, I'm not saying that the physician actively said peroxicam, ibuprofen, I, ah, doesn't matter, send them to hip replacement. <laughs> but in fact, that's what they did. 
show you the last experiment in this is a very known study by Sheena Anger and Mark Lepper, famously called the Jam Study. And Sheena uh, organized in Dragos, which is a very nice grocery store in Palo Alto, a, a jam tasting experiment. Sometimes she had six jams, sometimes she had 24 jams. You know, like you go to a, far, to a supermarket and they have a few jams and you can taste them. Perfectly reasonable. The first thing she asked was, how many people approached the jam tasting booth? And as you would expect, 24 jams were just more attractive. There's more color, there's more things happening, more people go and look at the jam. Then she asked, what about trying jams? Turns out people tried about a jam and a half. Doesn't matter. Of course, nobody tried a jam and a half. People are either trying one or two. Uh, doesn't matter how many jams there are. But the most important question was, how much jam will people buy? And she gave them, Peter, how are you? <laughs> and the most important thing was she gave them a coupon that was good not just for that jam, but for any jam in the store. What would happen? Now, at this point, you should think that your intuition is probably wrong and you should give the opposite uh, <laughs> respond to what you're used to, and that's, and that's correct. 30% <clears throat> of the people bought it in the 6-jam condition, 3% bought it in the 24-jam condition. Basically, 24 jams just too much for us to handle. Right? Now, jams are not complex, they're not difficult, but you add 24 of them and it's just too much. Now, the thing is that this is about the rate of default that people have for buying jam. So this promotion was very helpful, but all of its effectiveness went away when you had too much confusion brought by a few more, few more jams. What's the point of this? Defaults are incredibly powerful, yet we largely unrecognize their effect. I mean, try and think for yourself. Do you believe that if you were the DMV, your own response to whether you would donate your organs would change based on the form? It's very, very hard to imagine it would happen to us. Right? And I haven't tested you, of course, but since the UK is in this sample, um, it's very likely that you would behave this way. Nevertheless, it's very, very hard to admit or to think even that we could be influenced by such, such powers. So the point is that in, in standard economic terms, we, we think of ourselves as wonderful creatures. Right? This is Shakespeare, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, what, what wonderful creatures we are. And while we can recognize defaults in our spouses and bosses, uh, teachers, uh, it's very hard to see it in ourselves. Now, behavioral economics uh, think of us as not being uh, uh, this, this rational, and instead the, the view is more like this one. I don't know if it works in the, <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> Now, that's, that's a slightly sad view of human beings. That means that we're myopic and irrational, we make mistakes, we're fooled, we, 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 can, we can do all these things. So I want to tell you also that there's a silver lining in all of this. And the silver lining is that there are free lunches. Let me tell you what does it mean. In standard economics, if you think about the world, it's, the world is at equilibrium. It means that everybody is doing the best that they possibly can that it means that the world is actually perfect. And nobody can deviate from that equilibrium to better themselves. Now, if you think that people are irrational in any kind of systematic way, it's very sad about human beings, but it also means that there's a way to fix things. There's a way to make things, make things better. Okay, so let me give you a few um, other examples. 
I want you to consider for a second the possibility that you actually don't have well-defined preferences to the extent that you think you do. We, we get up every morning and we feel like we're wearing clothes that we like and we're eating food that we like and we're ordering things that we like and that we follow our preferences. Let's consider for a few minutes the possibility that you might not have such well-defined preferences. So imagine we divide the room into two. Okay, yeah, very good. And I ask the people on the right to uh, write ten reasons why you love your significant other and the people on the left to write three reasons. Now you don't have to write, just think. I'll give you a few seconds. Okay. Now imagine that I asked you, how much do you love your significant other? How likely are you to stay married to them in three years? To have an affair? Uh, all kinds of questions like this. Do you think that writing ten reasons or three reasons would make a difference? I mean, it shouldn't, right? After all, I didn't tell you anything about your spouse. I just asked you to reflect about the person you probably know best in the whole world. But guess what? It does matter. Who do you think declare more love to their spouse? People who thought about ten reasons or three reasons? Who believes in three? Who believes in ten? Okay, why, why ten? Sorry? Okay, more reasons to love them. Anybody for three here? Anybody willing to admit they said three? Yes. I think if you only have to think of three reasons, then you don't realize how hard it is to think of ten. Okay, very good. <laughs> My next question was whether your significant other is in the room. <laughs> it's just, you, uh, congratulations. <laughs> So, so it turns out you're right. It turns out most people run out at six or seven. And then, and then they go through a second process that says, if I can't come up with ten reasons, how much possibly can I love that person? So, so in some sense, even though I haven't told you anything in this question, I did tell you something because I created ten as a standard and you evaluate yourself based on that, that standard. By the way, the same thing works for BMW. I don't know if anybody here has a BMW. There are no ten reasons to buy a BMW, <laughs> and if you ask people to think about it, they're less likely to buy a BMW. Here's another one. Imagine I asked you how many times you floss a day on a scale from zero to nine or more, or on a scale on a month. Now, presumably, and then I ask you, should you go to a hygienist? Here's the phone number, a discount, should, should you do it? If I gave you the scale on a day, you would answer somewhere on the left, right? Assuming it's not zero, somewhere on the left. If I gave you the one on the, on the bottom, you would presumably answer something on the right unless you, unless you do zero. <coughs> and then what? Then you would think to yourself, oh my goodness, I'm only flossing once a day. I'm way below the norm. And call a hygienist. And if you were here, you say, oh, I'm flossing nine times or more a month. I'm perfectly fine. No need to call anybody. <coughs> the idea of all this is that we don't have such well-defined preferences. And even being asked questions about our preferences can get us to rethink about them in a different way. And once we thought about them in a different way, our preferences change. And we'll talk to you in a second about how thinking about preferences in a certain way, in one way, can actually have a cascading effect that would have a long-term long -term influence. But before I move to this, let me show you one more example. So many times we present 
um, products in the two attribute space. So imagine things go better on attribute two and better on attribute one. So we have product A that is good on attribute one and bad on attribute two. Product B which is good on attribute two and bad on attribute one. Now, what happens if we add a bad option to this set? Okay, so imagine I ask you, do you want to go to a Chinese restaurant, an Italian restaurant, or have your car broken into? Right? A really, <laughs> a clearly bad option. Now, when we give people a clearly bad option, it should not change your preferences between Italian and Chinese food by no way. But here what we do is we add a bad option that is bad, but similar to one of those things and not to the other. So we add something that is similar to A, but clearly inferior to it. <coughs> Would it have an influence? Well, a lot of our research has shown that it does. In particular, it makes A more attractive. <coughs> and the basic way to think about it is imagine I offered you the, same th the following thing. A weekend in Paris, all expenses paid. A weekend in Rome, all expenses paid. Which one would you like? Tough choice, right? Paris has some advantages. Rome has some advantage. Different food, different culture, different entertainment. But imagine I added something to the mix. I said, okay, have a weekend in Paris, weekend in Rome, all expenses paid. Or you can have a weekend in Rome, all expenses paid, but no espresso in the morning. <laughs> now, if you had a weekend in Rome without espresso in the morning versus Paris, it's again very hard to choose. But the weekend in Rome without espresso makes the weekend in Rome with espresso clearly better. <laughs> and we take this relative difference and make an inference that it's better not just in the weekend in Rome without espresso, but even better than Paris. So we add A prime and people start choosing A, and we add B prime and people start choosing B. And nicely enough, I have a British example of this. So a few years ago, The Economist ran the following ad on their website. You can have an online subscription for $59. Sounds reasonable. It's a very nice magazine. You can have a print subscription for $125. Again, it seems reasonable. It's nice. Or you can have both for $125. Now, independently, each of them seems reasonable. But when you have the, the, the combo deal for $125, why would you have this one? So I called up the economist and I said, what were you thinking? Now tell me. <laughs> and I wanted them to do an experiment with us. But they didn't. Uh, <laughs> they took it offline. By the way, I, I, as, a side, <coughs> as a side comment, I should say that I've been asking companies to do experiments with us for a very long time. It's very, very hard. We always think about companies being nimble and able to learn and able to study and optimize things in the market. Incredibly hard to get companies to learn anything, uh, in my opinion. <coughs> so I did the experiment that they wouldn't do with me. I printed this and I gave it to 100 MIT students, and here's the results. 16% wanted the, the online only, 84% did the combo. Nobody chose the dominated option. Our admission office do their work, right? They eliminate the people who are completely incapable uh, <laughs> of making decisions. <coughs> okay, then I... I did the other condition, which is if you have an item that has zero market share, why would you even offer it? So I created a situation where I just had these two offers, and they could choose. Again, 100 MIT students, what was popular became unpopular, what was unpopular became popular. You see, what is happening is that while this option has zero market share, it doesn't mean it's useless. It was pointing the students in this direction. 
telling them that relative to this, relative to this option, this was fantastic, and therefore they, they got it. Now, I want this to be an applied lecture as well, so you can have lessons for life, so I won't tell you about the next experiment, which is <coughs> much more practical. <coughs> so, in the domain of attraction, we often think of ourselves as having some innate preferences for people. We know who we like, who we don't like instantly, right? We feel that we, that we know that. So I did a similar experiment with faces of MIT students. Now, these are not MIT students. I couldn't, for human subject condition, to expose the students who participate in my experiment. So these are just computerized images. But imagine these are MIT students. So I took pictures of students who are different from each other, but kind of approximately have the same appeal. And the, I did the following. For some people, I showed student one, student two, and an ugly version of student one. <laughs> I highly recommend Photoshop. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> the other students, I, stu I showed student one, student two, and an ugly version of student two. What happened in the top version, this student one, and the bottom version, this student one. Now, what is clear from here is if you ever go bar hopping, what do you want to do? <laughs> you want this guy, right? <laughs> you, you want to take somebody as similar as possible to you, but slightly less attractive. <laughs> and, and the corollary for this is that if somebody else invites you to go with them as the wingman, you know how they think about you. <laughs> Now, let me, um, let me tell you a couple of other stories. So the first story I want to tell you is about the value of first decisions. Right? So we, we've said that we could dramatically influence how you view a decision. But does that have any long life, or will it change your decision every time? You would once be swung by how I asked you for three reasons about why you love your spouse, then ten, then something else. Or is there something special about the first time we make a decision that has a chance to continue um, being this way? And I want to describe to you an experiment and then propose a model for how people make decisions. So one day I came into a big class of students. And I said, uh, today we're going to have an auction. And I took six products, some wines, uh, some computer accessories, uh, some chocolates, some books, and I passed them around. Everybody could examine the products. On the wine, I described to them from Wine Spectre and Wine Magazine, so everybody knew what there was exactly. And then I asked each of the students to give me the last two digits of their social security number. Like here, you must have some number. What's the number here? Like a government ID or something, is there? National Health Service. National Health Service number. So imagine I asked each of you for your number. What's your number? Your, where you came from, there's no number? <laughs> okay. Sir, yours? 29. 29. I, I asked you before. I asked somebody else. No number. 50. So we have 29. We have 50. So you would write $29 next to each of the products, and you would write 50 next to each of the products, and each of you would get a number. And, and you would write that. Then I asked them, would you pay the amount set by the last two digits of your social security number for this product? Would you pay $29 for each of those products? Yes or no. Would you pay 50 for each of those things? Yes or no. Fine. 
Now we have an auction. Second price auction, the winner pays, the winner wins for, for real. Everybody submits their bids. Everybody submits their bid. We compute who is the winner. They come to the front of the room. They pay for the product. They get it home. Everybody goes home happy. And then I go back to my office and I compute the relationship between people's social security number and the willingness to pay. Now, it sounds like a crazy idea that your social security number will, would create, would change how much you're willing to pay for something. But that's the, what we saw in the results. In fact, people with high social security numbers willing to pay sometimes twice or three times as much as people with low social security number. Now, I know you're worried. You're stuck with a high social security number. You're saying, <laughs> there is reason why you paid so much for this jacket and the, and the shirt and, and so on. But of course, it wasn't, it wasn't because you were born with a high social security number and you're not cheap because you... <laughs> Man, it's, it's interesting, you're dressed much better than this guy. <laughs> um, what, what happened is that because people considered as the first decision a low number or a high number, it influenced the next decision. And of course, it shouldn't have. You just decide about a random number. But it turns out as an anchoring effect that makes us consider this for a second time. Okay? Now, let's think for a second about how could that play out in real life. <coughs> and before I tell you this, I want to, us to think about herding. So the best way to think about herding is to think about restaurants. You walk down the street in a city you don't know, and you see two empty restaurants. One on the right, one on the left. Which one do you pick? You have no idea. You pick one at random. Let's say the one on the right. Somebody else passes by, they see two restaurants, one with one person, one with zero. What do they pick? The one with one. Somebody else comes, they see two and zero, two, three, four. Information cascade. You assume that if there's more people, it's necessarily better, and you keep on herding to this way. Eventually, one restaurant is a big hit, one is a failure with no information whatsoever. Now, imagine that what we could do is have the same process where we heard not after other people, but after ourselves. We see ourselves behave in a certain way. And we say, gee, if I behave like this, this must be a wonderful decision. I mean, other people, it's one thing, but us, I always make the right decision. And then we follow our decision over and over and over. So, so let's think about Starbucks as an example of how this could happen. Imagine 10 years ago, you're in Boston, you walk down the street, you've been happily uh, drinking coffee at, at Dunkin' Donuts for 50 cents a cup. Uh, but Dunkin' Donuts is seven blocks away, and you, all of a sudden you see Starbucks. You have no idea about Starbucks, but it's here. You're tired, you're angry, you're running some annoying errand. You decide to go inside. You go inside, you're stunned by the price of coffee. You've never imagined coffee could cost so much. <coughs> but you're there already, and you decide to, uh, to have a cup of coffee. So you have a cup of coffee. It's okay, perfectly reasonable coffee. Uh, you go out, three days later you pass by. Do you remember how thirsty you were three days ago? How tired you were? How annoyed you were? Not so much, but we remember our actions much better than our preferences or emotional state. So you say, ah, I remember this. I remember being here before and I remember choosing to go into Starbucks. As if you saw yourself standing in line and you just stand in line behind yourself and you go again. And three days later you say, my goodness, I've been here twice, three times, four times. Eventually it becomes a habit. You stop thinking whether this is a reasonable decision on, on your behalf or not. You assume it is because you've done it so much it must be. And you keep on repeating and repeating and repeating. By the way, in our, op, in, in our social security experiment, 
while people we could easily flip them up and down in terms of the willingness to pay, there was also a consistency in the sense that everybody was willing to pay more for the better wine than the worse wine, and everybody was willing to pay more for the good computer accessory than the bad computer accessory. The same thing could happen in Starbucks. You're willing to pay more for medium than small and more for large than medium. But the fact that we have this consistency within a set does not mean that the absolute price willing to pay for coffee is sensible. Now, there's another question you can ask is, how could Starbucks ever convince us to buy coffee for such a long time? How come we didn't use Dunkin' Donuts prices? I mean, why did, how could we create a new line standing in front of Starbucks rather than using the old line that stood in front of Dunkin' Donuts? So imagine, for example, what would happen, this is a thought experiment, if Starbucks had the same layout of the store as Dunkin' Donuts, and they sold donuts and muffins and oatmeal cookies in the, same way that, in the same way that they did, but it was just called Starbucks and it had the coffee quality that Starbucks had. Under those conditions, we'd have probably compared the two. They sell donuts, they sell donuts, they sell muffins, they sell muffins. The only difference is the coffee quality. I don't think we'd have paid that much. But what Starbucks wanted to convince us was that this is a different category that we can't take our ideas from the prices of Dunkin' Donuts and import them into this domain. Here, my friends, is a different story. You, this is not your grandmother's coffee, right? We're talking about something very different. So what did they do? They sold us French presses, and they had French pastries. And if you wanted to order coffee, you had to learn a whole new language. You couldn't get, can I get a small coffee? They said, well, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> um, but this was all important because they wanted us not to rely on our old past behavior from Dunkin' Donuts and import it. They wanted to create a new line, a new set imprinting, and they wanted to control it. Now, if you look 10 years later, Starbucks is Dunkin' Donuts, at least in the U.S. They sell donuts, they sell oatmeal cookies, uh, they sell chocolate chip cookies. There's no French presses and there's no French pastries. They still have different names for, for the coffee. But now they don't need it anymore because we've dramatically shifted our, our consumption uh, from the consumption of the Dunkin' Donuts day to a new level of consumption, and we think that paying much more for coffee is perfectly, perfectly reasonable. Now, what is the problem here? The problem here is that willingness to pay is incredibly hard to do. We do it many times a day. We decide whether we're going to pay something for coffee, for a cookie, for, for a bicycle, for a shirt. But if you reflect on it, you would realize that it's actually very hard. Think about a piece of chocolate. I give you a Godiva truffle. You chew it, it melts in your mouth, you smell it, there's a little nut inside, a little bit stuck in your teeth. And then I ask you, how much is this pleasure worth to you? How much is it worth to you in terms of pounds? How difficult is that decision? Now, we do it all the time in some sense, but when you think about translating utility into money, you realize it's actually very, very hard. So because it's so hard, we rely on other things. Like what? On what we did yesterday, on what the prices were yesterday. And we compare it to things that are similar. We don't compare the price of chocolate to the price of everything else. We just compare it to the price of chocolates from yesterday, the price of what we did yesterday, and so on. There's a bigger point in all of this, which is that we usually think about supply and demand as being independent forces. We have supply, which is about production. We have demand, which is about uh, our own willingness to pay at different uh, quantities and prices. And these forces are assumed to be independent. Now, in the real market, where do people come with the social security number? 
Where do people come with these starting prices? It's manufacturer suggested retail price, advertised price, discounted. These are all things that are coming from the production side. So in, in, in this world, it is highly possible that there, that there is a dependency between the supply and demand. And when people think about their willingness to pay, because it's so difficult, they actually rely on supply to determine it. Okay, let me tell you, uh, switch to another story. Um, I think you all probably remember Enron. When Enron started a few years ago, <coughs> I started thinking about what, what was going on. <coughs> These are the three characters. <coughs> and I was wondering, could there be it as a company that had such HR practices that collected... 10,000 evil individuals in one place. <laughs> um, or could it be that there was something about Enron that allowed people to behave this way? And if so, what was it? Now, I'm not saying these are good guys, but at the same time when they were you know, taking a lot of money from the U.S. economy, about $40 billion, and they also gave a lot of money to charity in their environment, and they volunteered. They did all kinds of things, which makes it kind of difficult to think of them as, as regular crooks. So I wanted to investigate a little bit cheating. And, you know, we usually kind of do little experiments. So let me tell you about some little experiments. So I take a sheet of paper with 20 simple math problems that everybody can solve given enough time, but I don't give people enough time. And I pass those to students, and I pay them a dollar per question that they got correctly. When the five minutes are over, I say, time is up. Give me your sheet. How many questions you solve correctly? The average student solved four of those. I paid them $4. Everybody goes home happy. Then I take another group. I pass the sheets again. But when the five minutes are over, I say, please shred your piece of paper. And tell me how many you solved. These guys do not become smarter because they shredded the piece of paper. But they do solve seven problems. <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly, it's not as if there are a few bad apples who cheat a lot. Instead, there's a lot of, what's they like, not rotten apple, but slightly uh, blemish apples. There's a lot of people who cheat a little bit. And just so you don't think I'm, I'm uh, kind of saying bad things about MIT, this is correct for MIT and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and UCLA. Um, so a lot of people are cheating a little bit. Now, why are people cheating a little bit? We can say, well, one thing is maybe they, um, oh, sorry. Why are people cheating? We should change the probability of being caught, and we should change the magnitude of the amount that they could gain from that. So we did that. In other experiments, we paid people 10 cents per correct question, 25 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, two dollar, five dollar. Not a big difference. They don't cheat more. Then we change the probability of being caught. They shred half of the sheet. They shred the whole sheet. Some people go out of the room and pay themselves from a jar of money that has over a hundred dollars. No difference. So it doesn't seem that people are sensitive to the probability of being caught or the amount of reward. So what is going on? So one kind of possibility is that we all want to look at ourselves in the mirror and feel good about it. And that's a value for us. It's valuable to, to think of ourselves as good people. But we can also cheat a little bit and still think of ourselves as good people, like a fudge factor. I can maybe cheat by two questions and think, still think of myself as a good person, but three is too much. <laughs> so how do, how do we test something like this? How do we get people, to, if that's a threshold like this, 
How do we get the threshold to go down and get people less comfortable cheating? And how do we get the threshold to go up and get people to be more comfortable cheating? So I'll tell you first about how do we get the threshold to go down. What if we got people to contemplate morality? So we bring people to an experiment and we say, today we have two experiments for you. The first one is a memory experiment. Half of you, please recall ten books you read in high school. Other half, please recall the Ten Commandments. Now, anybody here thinks they remember the Ten Commandments? No, good. I don't think, I don't think you would. It's very hard to remember it. Very few people do. But at least they spend a couple of minutes trying to. <coughs> then we bring them to the experiment and we tempt them to cheat. People who thought about the Ten Commandments don't get any better in math, but they stop cheating. No cheating whatsoever. Then we did <coughs> the same experiment, but with the honor code. We got the students at MIT to sign, I understand that this experiment falls under the MIT honor code. We tempt them to cheating, no cheating whatsoever. Okay. And, and that's despite the fact that MIT doesn't have an honor code. <laughs> now, now here, here is another thing that, that, that puzzles me, and Chris will uh, attest to this thing at Princeton. Princeton has a very strong honor code. They, they basically wait, uh, waste, well, that's a question. They spend time with their undergrad driving the honor code into it. Okay, it's a very big thing on campus. When you take the average Princeton undergrad and the average MIT undergrad on the street, do you think they cheat any differently? No, they cheat just the same. I mean, in some sense, the Princeton experiment of trying to drive honesty into their students have failed. Unless you think that they started from a worse uh, position. But <laughs> assuming, assuming you think they started the same, the, the, the attempt to instill a culture of honor at Princeton has not worked. At the same time, getting people to contemplate morality, whether they really have an honor code or not, doesn't matter. Let me tell you something about the idea of how difficult it is to create a cultural overall change and how relatively it is to, to make a small change in the immediate environment. And I think that's a very general message from, from the kind of things we do. Okay, now what about cheating more? If you want to, to understand this, how, how do we get people to cheat more? So there's a joke in Israel that basically goes the following. A kid come from, I'm also telling you it's a joke so you'll think it's funny and you'll laugh at the end. <coughs> that's, that's about the roles of expectations. So a kid, a kid come from home from school and he, says, he has a note from the teacher that says, a little David uh, stole the pencil from the kid who was sitting next to him. And his father is furious. He said, David, I can't believe you did that, and you saw it's embarrassing and humiliating. We didn't bring you up to do this. I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I don't know what to do. I'll have to think of some punishment. I, I just don't know what to say. And besides, if you need a pencil, why don't you just say something? I can bring you a dozen from work. <laughs> now, now what, what is the intuition here? The intuition is that while it will be quite easy for us to take a pencil from work, it will be very difficult to take 10 cents from a petty cash box. Now, why, why is it different? Is it because when we talk about the pencil, there's all kinds of ways in which we can rationalize it? Now, with pencil, it can also be true. It could be that you work somewhere that actually expects you to take a pencil from work or a place that has it in your contract or, you know, there's some... some just, but, so here are two experiments. One is not, is not a great experiment from an experimentalist perspective, but it's, it's cute. So I walk around MIT, and I deposit six packs of Coke in common refrigerators. 
Okay, and I come back to check on my Cokes from time to time, and I measure what is technically known as the half-lifetime of Coke. <laughs> so, and it's, it's, it's an amazing isotope. I mean, it disappears very quickly. Very quickly, there's no Coke left anywhere. And then I put a, six, a, a plate with six $1 bills in the same place. Now, students could take the $1 bill and go to the vending machine and take a Coke and get change. Cokes are 75 cents. Nevertheless, no money ever goes away. Now, this is not exactly a great experiment because it's quite surprising to find a plate with $6 bills in the refrigerator. <laughs> so, here, so here's another version. I do the same matrix experiment I described before. A third of the people get it. They finish, they solve it, they solve four problems. A third get it, they shred it. They come and they say, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X dollars. They say they solve seven. The third group come, they shred a piece of paper, and they say, Mr. Experimenter, I solved X problems, give me X tokens. We give them a token per question. They walk 12 feet to the sides and exchange it for money. This is a pencil that is a pencil for a couple of seconds. and It has no independent use. It's just about being cheating for something that is not money. Our students double their cheating in this condition. Now, I, I think that's the most frightening result from, from this general perspective. Because think about somebody who's backdating their stock options. <clears throat> How many steps is this removed from cash? It's not cash, it's stocks, it's not stock, it's not stock options. It's not as if I ask for more, I just change the date a little bit. There's so many ways to rationalize it that it's possible that a person would think of themselves as highly moral who could not take 10 cents from a petty cash box of the company could nevertheless cheat in all kinds of other ways. And the more we become a society that is removed from cash, the more we have, I think, chances to, to fail. Now, you know, if you think about me as an economy, I lost very little money in the experiment. We ran about 4,000 students in all these experiments. I ran very little money to the few bad apples I had. Maybe there were four bad apples, something like that. <clears throat> so I lost a few dollars to these guys. I lost thousands of dollars to all the good people who cheated just by a little bit. And that, by the way, is not very different from society. Now, I'll tell you some numbers in the U.S. It turns out that the estimated market for home robbery, car theft, and arsony combined is $16 billion. It turns out that the market for consumer fraud on insurance property, on property claims from home theft, is $24 billion. And the insurance people don't think that it's people who invent robberies, but you lost a 31-inch television, it becomes 36, one earring becomes two. Everybody exaggerates a little bit. I think the same thing happened in tax. And the market for wardrobing, wardrobing is the practice of going to a clothing department, buying some clothes, wearing them to a party, get them torn or smelly or something, returning them in a situation, I, I see some of you are smiling, you've, you've done this, uh, and returning them in... In, in, in a bad state, the store can't sell. Now, this doesn't feel bad, right? It doesn't feel bad, to, like taking $100. The clothing industry in the U.S. think they lose about $16 billion a year to this particular practice. The final number, which is, is a crazy number because it's very hard to find out, is the number of within-company theft and fraud. What is clear is that within-company shrinkage, the amount of loss they have for consumer product that they lose within the company, is much bigger than the whole market for theft, fraud, arsony, car theft, everything put together. And on top of that, you put things like crazy things with expense report and all of those things. It, it just becomes a very big market.
more or less thing. The average career criminal in the U.S. makes in their lifetime about $20,000. Now, it's true that the working life is cut short by imprisonment, so they don't have a full potential. But, but a stockbroker who shaves a couple of pennies uh, on a few transactions can get more than that before their morning latte. Right? And, and as a society, I think we, we focus on the bad people who have planned dishonesty, who do what economic theory tells us they should do. They, they weigh the cost and benefit. Should I break in? Shouldn't I break in? You, know, we, you and me are going by a gas station. How much money is in there? What's the chance will catch us? How much time will we get in prison? Good behavior. We wait and, and decide. We pay a lot of attention to that particular crime. And what we fail to think is the crime that all of us can commit when we still think of ourselves as good people and just have particular ways to change reality and see it in the way that, that suits us at the moment. Let me just summarize um, quickly. <coughs> you know, the, the behavioral economics is about the fact that we're not Superman. We're limited. And the interesting thing is that when we come to design real products, when we design phone, wheelchairs, car, you know, watches, pens, whatever you want, we realize our physical limitations. We see it everywhere, so we try to design things that work like this. We don't always succeed. I think the software industry is particularly bad at it. But in general, we recognize physical problems and we try to design products for people. Somehow when we design products for the mind, when we design insurance products, retirement products, healthcare products, annuities, we somehow forget about these physical limitations and somehow we go again and design products to Superman. And I think to the extent that we're able to learn the same lessons from the, the physical environment, to the extent that we can learn where cognitive limitations are, we might be able to create a better set of products. We're in a unique position that we actually have a huge control over our environment. We can, we can create the world that we end up living with, and if we make the right assumption about what we're capable and not, we might actually be able to, to build a better world. Thank you very much. We have time now for questions, and uh, we have monitors at the edge, so what we'd like to do is um, if you could raise your hand and you've got a question, wait till you've got the microphone, and then um, <coughs> ask the question. Here's somebody in the middle. Can you pass it down? Incidentally, while that's happening, I uh, need to remind you that this uh, event is recorded, and it'll be made available online for public consumption as a podcast on the LSE website if you want to see any of this again. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thanks for an interesting talk. Um, I've got two questions. Speak a bit louder. Sorry, I've got two questions. One is, how did you get into behavioral economics? And two... Sorry, how do you... How did you get into this topic? <coughs> how did you get into this topic? Yeah. Yeah. And two, is there any special reason why you're wearing red shoes? <coughs> So, um, so, you know, I mean, I talked a little bit about, about my injury and how, how it led me to this. I, th I think in general, apart from this, uh, 
I, I'm not a very good scientist in a sense that scientists have like a problem that bothers them and they think about it for 20 years and they really become expert in it. And I'm much more applied. You know, I started by a particular interest in pain and, and, and patients and I kept on having the same approach. I see a problem in the world. I see saving. I see healthcare. And I think about that particular problem and I try to bring whatever tools are possible. And, I, and actually... For me, all sorts of science is, is perfectly reasonable. I'm happy to use economics when I think it's reasonable and sociology and even anthropology. So I'm, I'm very driven by problems rather than by, <coughs> um, <coughs> by science. And, and when you look at, at problems in the world, I think many times they, they call for, for solutions that come from, uh, from this particular direction. <coughs> but I have some papers where, where it's not, but, but mostly they are. <coughs> As for the shoes... First of all, I'll tell you about the socks. So the socks, you see, they don't match. <laughs> it's a company. There's a company called Little Mismatch, and they sell socks at threes, and they all slightly don't match, which means they always match, no matter how many you have. <laughs> and at some point, I did, I did a project on the mystery of the disappearing socks. I mean, it's unbelievable how many socks disappear out there. <clears throat> like, where do they all go? And we had some theories, and we tested it. And, and I figured out that if I have all mismatching socks... Okay, oh, so, so, sorry. So one of the problems that happened is that you misplace one sock, and then you count the missing sock twice. You find one, it's always the other one. Then you find the other one, where's the first one? <laughs> you never know. So with mismatched socks, it always works. Always works well. And then as, as for shoes, I, I realized a long time ago, I have no sense in dressing, and, and, I, and I outsource that decision. So my secretary does all my clothes shopping, and uh, I'm, I'm out of the circle. I, I can't make mistakes. <laughs> okay, another question. Here's one down here. There's one on the top. Oh. Okay, why don't, you, why don't you give him the microphone and then we can speed up the process. Yeah, uh, if you go back in time, let's say 100,000 years ago and you have uh, the uh, ancient man running around with the same kind of handicap Yes. Or what seems handicapped today? Yeah. Was it an advantage then? <coughs> yeah, that's a very good question. So, so is it the right way to view all of our limitations as uh, historical advantages? It just turned out not to work well for this, for this environment. I think at least some of them are. I'm not sure about all of them. So, if you were an animal in the jungle a while ago and you saw a tiger, you don't want to start thinking: what's the pro? What's the con? Should I run? Should I stay? You want a system that takes over, executes the commands, and gets you to run. You want your blood to go away from all the unnecessary things and fuel the things that are actually important for survival at the moment. And, and that's the structure of emotion. Emotions are not invoked by us. They're invoked by environment, the tiger, whatever it is. And when they invoke, we can't control them. By definition, they take over. So, so there are some, clearly some things that are evolutionary, very, very sensible. Now, if you're an investor in the stock market, it's not clear that you want the same type of emotion as if you're an animal in the jungle. So, so I absolutely agree with you that there are some things that could have been, could have been an advantage. I don't think all of them are, but, but some are. So this is a good time to buy, is it? <laughs> uh, I'm not going there. Economists are really good about predicting what happened in the market yesterday. I'm, uh... <laughs> There's a question here. Yeah. Yes, question. Uh, thank you. Um, Going back to your frame example with the uh, opt-in, opt-out organ donation system, I'm wondering, um, don't you believe that there's some kind of benefit to uh, staying in inertia? And if that's true, if we incorporate it into our cost-benefit analysis, 
Wouldn't that make us rational after all? <coughs> so, so there, are two, there are many ways, of course, to think about rationality. And every time you decide to incorporate more costs, you, you, can, you can decide to have a rational model. You know, I actually like economics. I think economics is wonderful. And I think that some things should be left outside of economics on, on, on principle. The goal of economics, in my mind, is to give us important insights about human behavior, not to do a perfect description of the world. So I worry about if we incorporate everything into economics, you basically lose the, the, the value of economics. And let me say one, one more thing. <clears throat> the reason to attack economics, it's not because you know, it's the short little kid in the block and ugly that you just kind of go and, and hit on them because they're the, the most annoying one. It's, <clears throat> economics is actually wonderful. The problem is that when it comes to questions about prescription, how do you do things about policy, business, legislation, and so on, do you want to take every, you want to trust just economics, or do you want to include more into the, the equation? And I'll say, I'll say a final thing is, I, I believe in science. And, and what that means is that before the U.S. government gives $153 billion dollars <laughs> in the particular tax incentives they're doing now, I want to say that there are many ways to give $153 billion. For example, you could give it in check, you could give it in credit, you could give it in retirement saving, you can give it in gift certificates. I mean, there's just a lot of ways. And, and I'm not smart enough to tell you ex ante which one is the right way. So I think we need to do experiments. We need to take what economics is telling, what psychology is telling us, to design three or four different conditions that might yield the best results, and test them out and let the data tell us what is, what is correct. That's, that's kind of my ideal, like experimental policy, that when we make really big decisions, uh, we, we test it out. And, and a good analogy for this is the medical field. Many years ago, medicine was a, was a study on placebo. I mean, there was really nothing exciting about medicine. And, and you can understand it. If you were a physician and you saw leeches working on a couple of your patients, would you deprive half the patients from leeches just to test if it's correct? Of course not. You will give everybody leeches. And in the consequence of doing it, you will never be able to learn what's right and what's wrong. Now, in the medical domain, we're forcing people to do experiments. The FDA in the U.S., I forgot the name. SIPA, is it here? The, the organization that forces the European people to do, uh, to do medical testing. I think we need to do the same thing for businesses and for policy. After okay. I give long answers, usually fewer people ask questions. Yep, we have, a, we have a question down here. And in the meantime, could somebody uh, take it up there? First uh, your, here. Ans your, uh, the, your answer to the previous question slightly anticipated my question. At the very end of your presentation, you dealt, seemingly to me, in a very terse fashion with the ethical implications of your work. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on, on the ethical implications <coughs> of what you are doing. Yes. The, the ethical problems, I mean, there are two, actually there are multiple ways in which uh, ethics becomes very difficult. Let me tell you about one quick experiment that maybe illustrates this the most. So we bring people to the lab. We tell them we're testing a new medical painkiller. Uh, we measured how much electrical shocks they can take, how much pain they take. Then we give them a painkiller, and we tell half of them it's expensive, half of them is cheap. Then we measure their pain tolerance again, and we find out that the expensive painkiller works much better than the cheap one. 
And by the way, we gave them placebo. Now, placebo really works. I don't know how much you know about placebo, but it turns out that when a physician comes to inject you with water with some salt, your body secretes substance that's very much like morphine. We have these opioids inside of our brain, and we can secrete them. So when you get an injection with nothing, you actually can get pain relief if your body thinks you're going to get pain relief. Now, here's the issue. Placebo is wonderful. It has no side effect and it's very cheap. <laughs> we, can, we can do it to a lot of people. By the way, I, I, in the burn department, I used to do it to patients all the time. There were patients that passed their limit for how much morphine they could get, and the nurses would come and inject them with, with water. And I was always snooping around the, uh, the nurse's station, so I knew who, who is, uh, what's going on with the medication. So I knew there was some patient that would pass their limit, and then I would ask them, and they would tell me, I would just give him uh, IV fluid. And it's amazing to see somebody screaming for pain, getting an injection with nothing and going to sleep. But it's real. It's real in the sense that there was nothing in the injection. But there's enough substance in our own brain that creates pain relief. Now, placebo depends on lying to people. If you tell people you're getting placebo, you're not going to get the effect. So what do you do? Imagine that our research could create a wonderful new placebo. We would optimize the price and the color and what, the, what, what physicians should wear. By the way, when physicians wear a white coat and a stethoscope, it helps the placebo effect. <laughs> and we could tell them how excited they should pretend to be to the patient. I mean, we, we could design a whole world that would be optimized placebo. And, but, but it hinges on us lying to people to get them better. Should we do it? And, and I think this kind of emphasized the, the, the problem. I mean, you're talking about paternalism, I guess, right? What, what do you do when you know what's better for people than they know for themselves? Do you just do it for themselves? Um, you know, I, wonder, I wonder if your question was, a, was it to explore the idea that people are a little bit rotten. <laughs> Is that what you were talking about? I wondered if you were talking about the experiments where he found that people will lie a little bit. They will cheat a little bit. Is that what yeah. you were talking about? I mean, I think the question is how much do we control people's lives? How much, how much do we as, if I understand correctly, how much as we as policymakers decide for everybody what they should be doing rather than giving people free will? Was that the issue or am I wrong? I could have just gone on a tangent for five minutes. Let, let me finish my tangent um, and then we'll let's come go back. on to another question that was one <laughs> okay. up here somewhere. Where but let, let, me just, let me just finish by saying, look, these oh, are difficult okay. questions. I don't have a good answer for them. And these are, these are wonderful things to debate. I just don't know the answer. Yes. I was, <clears throat> I was interested in the experiment concerning choice with respect to the number of jams people are presented with this. And I was wondering whether a similar thing applies to the selection of marriage partners, because it seems to me if that's true, <laughs> if, we are, if we are paralyzed by choice, it would mean that people who live in large cities are less likely to marry than people who live in small towns. Is that actually the case? So I don't know about the large cities versus small towns, but it also turns out to work on 401k options, on retirement savings. If you give people more 401k options, they're more likely to take the default. Now, what's the default? In many companies, it's not participate, but you can imagine the default was good, like lifetime, li lifestyle kind of bond, uh, fund that changes bonds and stocks. 
And, and this actually goes to the question of are we, are we benevolent or benevolent? You can imagine that you might want to confuse your employees because you want them to take a particular thing that is good for them or you want to confuse them to do something that is bad for them. About dating, I've actually done a lot of work on dating, um, on online dating. We found a lot of interesting things. One of the things that eHarmony does very well, I don't know, how many people here online date? <laughs> okay. How many people would admit that they online date? Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. It turns out that people juggle in online dating. What does it mean? It means that they have multiple relationships with multiple people going at the same time. And the more they expand the set and try to juggle more balls in the air, the less time they have to dedicate to a particular person, and the chances of actually getting a relationship out of this goes away. But it turns out that if you start a discussion with 15 people, it's very hard to figure out, this is my best chance from these 15, and let me tell the other one, sorry, I'm not interested. So instead what people do is they escalate the number of contacts with that person higher, and they escalate the other one a little bit but they clearly do it to the, to the devastation of their ability to focus on one person. So I think there's clearly a problem. And eHarmony solved it by the fact that they don't give you all the options. You finish answering these 800 questions, and somebody else does, you know what, I'm not sure I have anybody for you. Answer three more questions. Say, oh, I have one thing for you. And they give you one, one person. I think in some sense, that's their magic. Their magic is that they, they don't give people all all this choice. Let, let me end by, since we talk about online dating, let me say something about Obama and online dating. <coughs> um, in, in, one, in one set of studies, we found that when people in online dating describe themselves in more vague terms, other people like them more. Okay? It also works for pictures. So if you put more uh, uh, fuzzy pictures of yourself, you'll be more loved. Um, but... And, and the reason that this happens is that people fill the gaps in over-optimistic ways. So I say, I like music. You all think I like the same music you like. And, and because of this fuzziness and because we're really bad at describing ourselves online, people create incredible expectations of the person they're going to, to meet. And then, of course, they have a first coffee and they get devastated. And, and interestingly enough, people don't seem to learn. You, you take people who've been dating online for a long time, they get just as devastated after the, first, after the first date. And I think the same thing is happening with Obama. You know, he, he is so vague that everybody reads into him what they hope he will be. And in fact, that's part of his charm. And the question, of course, is when will we have the first coffee with Obama? <laughs> Before the democratic election after the democratic election, but before the general election, or after the general election. Like, nobody can sustain the expectation that the Americans have from Obama. Like, no human being can do that. So, so we will get disappointed. The question is, when, when will it happen? That's probably a good point to end. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>